This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight on 360, Trump's trials. A New York judge orders the former president to pay $355 million for business fraud, saying his lack of contrition and remorse in his words borders on the pathological. Does that man who once boasted about his financial liquidity actually have the cash? Also tonight, we'll have the latest in the death of Alexei Navalny in Vladimir Putin's prison and the crackdown tonight on Russians paying Navalny their respects. And Fonnie Willis, her father, takes the stand. What happened in the Georgia courtroom today? And what are Willis's chances of staying on the election interference case against Trump? Good evening. Thanks for joining us. A lot to get to tonight. When we first was running for president, Donald Trump told CBS News, I'm the king of debt. I'm great with debt. Nobody knows debt better than me. Well, tonight he is sitting on an even bigger mountain of it. $355 million more imposed today in New York's now successful civil fraud case against him and his two adult sons. On top of the $83 million he has to pay for defaming E. Jean Carroll, the woman he, a federal jury said he sexually abused. So in the span of 22 days, the former president is now on the hook for about half a billion dollars. In today's ruling, the judge credited former Trump lawyer and fixer Michael Cohen for testifying truthfully in a trial whose genesis dates back to Cohen's appearance before a congressional hearing four years ago. To your knowledge, did the president or his company ever inflate assets or revenues? Yes. And uh, was that done with the president's knowledge or direction? Everything was done with the knowledge and at the direction of Mr. Trump. Well, Mr. Trump weighed in on the ruling tonight from Mar-a-Lago, confirming the judge's assessment about lacking remorse. There was no fraud. The banks all got their money, 100%. They love Trump. They testified that Trump is great, great customer, one of our best customers. They testified beautifully. And the judge knows that. He's just a corrupt person. And we knew that from the beginning. That's the former president of the United States tonight. More on how we got here from CNN's Kara Scannell, who, who joins us. Now, this began last October. Can you just remind people what happened inside and outside the courtroom since then? Yeah, I mean, it was an 11-week trial. It had everything from the most mundane testimony about accounting rules to the former president appearing 10 times, even though he was not required to. He also testified, as did his three adult children, Don Jr., Eric, and Ivanka Trump. And he, while he was on the stand, he even almost got thrown off the stand for campaigning. And on the final day of the trial, Trump made one last-ditch effort to try to convince the judge to find his way, and that clearly carried no weight. A devastating blow to Trump's reputation as a successful businessman after a New York Supreme Court judge ordered him and his company to pay nearly $355 million, barring him from serving as a company director in the city where he made his billions, where his name is plastered on skyscrapers for three years. Donald Trump may have authored the art of the deal, but he perfected the art of the steal. This long-running fraud was intentional, egregious, illegal. Friday's ruling follows a nearly three-month-long trial filled with dramatic moments. Trump himself often chose to attend court, though he was only required to be there when he testified. This trial was railroaded and fast-tracked. This trial could have been brought years ago but they waited till I was right in the middle of my campaign. He frequently attacked Judge Gorin as well as his clerk and the New York Attorney General in the hallways of the courthouse and on Truth Social. This judge is a very partisan judge. 
with a person who's very partisan sitting alongside of us. We're wasting our time with this trial. With a Democrat judge from the clubhouses, it's a disgrace. And we're going to be here for months with a judge that already made up his mind. We have a rogue judge who rules that properties are worth a tiny fraction, one one hundred, a tiny fraction of what they actually are. A Trump hater, the only one that hates Trump Boris is associate up there. His attacks even resulted in the judge issuing a gag order, restricting him from going after the court staff, which Trump then violated twice and was fined a total of $15,000. I thought they were going to go somewhere, but I think they understand that they have uh, nothing as it relates to a case other than, I guess, an overzealous attorney general who would destroy all of New York business by going after transactions where there are no victims. Uh, you know, I guess other than herself. The former president and his adult sons all testified during the trial, which began in October last year. During his testimony, Donald Trump frequently clashed with Judge Gorin in the courtroom. The judge warning Trump's lawyer Chris Keis to control your client and threatened to remove him. Thank you very much. Outside Mar-a-Lago Friday, after the ruling, Donald Trump continued those attacks. These are radical left Democrats. They're lunatics. And it's election interfering, so I just want to thank you for being here. Uh, we'll appeal, we'll be successful, I think, because frankly, if we're not successful, New York State is gone. People are moving out of New York State, and because of this, they're going to move out at a much faster rate. I want to bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig, also former federal prosecutor, best-selling uh, author Jeffrey Tubin, also CNN's Caitlin Collins, who anchors The Source at the top of the next hour, and Kara's is with us. So, Kara, just what does this ruling mean for Donnie Jr. and, and Eric Trump? I mean, the judge is banning them from serving as an officer or director of a company in New York State for two years. So that leaves this big question of who is going to step in and run the Trump organization. It's mostly managed day to day by Eric Trump. They don't even have a chief financial officer since Alan Weisselberg left. And remember, he pleaded guilty to 15 years of tax fraud. He got fined for a million. He got fined for a million today, too. He was a co-defendant in this case. Now, I reached out to my sources connected to Trump and the Trump organization. No one has gotten back since this judgment came out. So I think it is going to be a big question of who will take over. You know, at this point, it's not clear who that leader is inside the company. Jeff, what stood out to you from the ruling? Well, I think people need to know what this case was really about. I mean, you know, what the president, former president said is what this defense was in this case, which was I borrowed money and I paid it back. So what's the problem? There's no harm. The problem is that because he lied about his assets, he got lower interest rates to have to pay it back. So he benefited to the tune of millions of dollars by lying to the banks and to other authorities about how much money he had. He has never acknowledged that. But this damage award is because he got all this benefit, millions of dollars, lower interest rates, because of the lies that he told. And Ellie, is there, I mean, the, the chance of an appeal, the, is there one for him? Well, he certainly will appeal. I think he has next to no chance of prevailing. I don't think I've ever but read... But he has to put up money yeah. just to appeal. He has to put up a bond. Usually the parties will agree on it. If not, the judge will set. It's usually some percentage. And you can secure the bond with properties or that kind of thing. He's not going to have to bring a suitcase full of cash. But reading this opinion, th this opinion was written by this judge absolutely with appeal in mind. It's meticulous. He goes through every property, every transaction, and he puts things in the appeal that he knows he cannot be reversed on. For example, Assessing how credible a witness is, did I believe this witness or not, that is uniquely up to the trial judge. You can't be reversed on that. So 
Donald Trump certainly will appeal. I think he's got next to no chance of winning on it. And Donald and, and Michael Cohen, whom yeah. this judge believed is the central witness in the criminal case against him, which mm-hmm. is going to start on March 25th. So, of course, it's no guarantee that the jury is going to believe him. But it is certainly a good sign for the prosecution that at least this judge. Because there's certainly been a lot Cohen. of concern about Michael Cohen's testimony and how credible he actually yeah, when, is. When you have a defense, when you have a witness who's pleaded guilty to lying repeatedly the way Michael Cohen has. That is a problematic witness. But not that notwithstanding, um, the judge believed him and he's going to be the main witness in the uh, Stormy Daniels case. Caitlin, you've spoken to former prison uh, uh, Republican rival Nikki Haley. What is she? Is she talking about this? She made a good point, actually, when it comes to what is facing Trump. It is a massive financial weight on him right now, especially with this, because it's not just what we heard today, which also has, you know, it's north of about $100 million of interest added on top of this. It's also the Eugene Carroll verdicts and all of the other civil cases that he's also still dealing with, in addition to the legal fees he's paying for the criminal cases. So we had Nikki Haley on, uh, we have her on the show tonight, and we asked her about her reaction to this and just the fact that he's going to have trouble paying for it, and this is what she said. How damning do you believe this ruling is? I mean, my biggest issue is I don't want the RNC to become, you know, his legal defense fund. I don't want the RNC to become his piggy bank for his personal court cases. We've already seen him spend $50 million worth of campaign contributions towards his personal court cases. Now we see him trying to get control of the RNC so that he can continue not to have to pay his own legal fees. The problem is that doesn't help us win any seats in the House, in the Senate, or anything else if the RNC is all focused on his legal fees. The RNC is practically broke now as it is. And so this is a bigger issue for the Republican Party. Two things from that. Uh, The RNC is practically broke right now, but also the pack that Donald Trump has been using to transfer money to a leadership pack to pay money for his own legal bills also doesn't have a lot of money left. I think they had $5 million left after they spent $50 million or so on legal fees just last year alone in the last half of last year. And so I think there is a real question. And the RNC did pay a lot of Trump's legal fees before when he was in office. Isn't he trying to get his daughter-in-law to head the RNC? Yeah. And and it's, I mean, he doesn't get to install them. They have to be technically elected. He's also picked who he wants to run the RNC and be the new chairman after next Saturday in South Carolina. Carolina. And so these are all Trump loyalists that are going to be running the RNC. And so she does raise a good point there about the issues of that's not supposed to be just a personal legal fund for the former president. But this is what Republicans have agreed to do, you know, time and time again. Is it clear, Kara, how much he cash he actually has on hand? So he testified in a deposition in this case about a year ago, and he said they had in excess of $400 million in cash. Well, now, then that of course, must be true. Well, it, right. That's the question. Is that an actual? If he testified to it, it's got to be true. <laughs> is, that a, is that a valid number? We don't know. That's the only thing we have to go on because it's a private company and so closely held. And there was no testimony really about that at this trial. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he has been trying to sell some of his properties, including Seven Springs here in New York. That was one of the properties that the judge found was inflated in value, and there's been no buyer yet. So it's it's going to be an interesting question. Can he offload any businesses if he needs to or if he wants to in order to raise cash? Can I also just say one thing as I was reading through this when the judge, when he was meticulously going through everything, Donald Trump has been saying time and time again that Mar-a-Lago <clears throat> is worth north of a billion dollars, maybe a billion five, I believe he says. The judge rightly writes here that 
It's not a private residence. The deed of Mar-a-Lago says it can't be a private residence. It's a, a club. And that even if it were, it would be 400% north of the most valuable property, private property in the United States, basically saying it's completely unrealistic. And he had this footnote. He said, Donald Trump knows this because he signed the deed for Mar-a-Lago. Just like showing that every time Trump comes out at Mar-a-Lago and what he has said about this is completely wrong. One of the things that the former president was saying at Mar-a-Lago during his rant was that they had this expert witness who was highly respected, I think from NYU, Stern School of Business, who they paid, uh, he didn't point this out, but he paid him an awful lot of money. Yeah, that expert witness was a bit of a mess. And I know Kara recalls his testimony. He tried to explain, for example, the tripling of the size of the apartment, and he was confronted on that. And he said, well, that must have just been an error. I mean, first of all, that's not anything an expert witness would know. And the judge rejected his testimony, which is what judges do. They will, or juries, if there's a jury, there was not in this case. But when the judge looked at this guy's testimony, he said, I think he's in the bag for them. And I think his testimony makes no sense and is not credible. And to Caitlin's point, the difference in valuations here are not 20%, 30%. They are mind-boggling. I think Seven Springs is worth $10 million, something in that range. And the Trump people tried to claim it's worth $140 million. I don't even know what's 1,400% different. Um, and that's why the judge came out with the ruling he did. And, and my favorite argument was about the square footage is that his lawyer said, well, the number of square feet is a matter of interpretation. <laughs> square feet is not a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of like a ruler. And it, it just underlines the absurdity of yeah, some of their everybody, arguments. Everybody, uh, thanks. Next, more on today's ruling. Art of the Deal author Tony Schwartz joins us, the guy who actually wrote the book. Later, more breaking news. Reporting you'll see here first on CNN, what sources are now telling us about a nuclear space weapon that Russia is working on and the damage they say it could do. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be, too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Before the break, you heard New York State Attorney General Letitia James say this in the wake of today's $355 million judgment against Donald Trump. Donald Trump may have authored the art of the deal, but he perfected the art of the steal. 
She's actually wrong about something. We have the person who actually wrote The Art of the Deal, Tony Schwartz, more recently the author of Dealing with the Devil, My Mother, Trump, and Me. Um, what is your, what's your reaction to this today? Um, to believe that this is an incredible blow to him. Now, I'm not talking about from an election perspective, but nothing is more important to Donald Trump than money. This is something not everybody understands. That is his number one. Number one. More important than power, more important than dominance, because... More important than family? <laughs> family is down at number 18 or 24. The, not unimportant is the crime family. You know, he's officially now the head of a crime family because his two sons also were uh, mm, convicted. convicted. Um, but money is, for Donald Trump, the measure of his worth, the measure of his value. He has no... In his own head. He, in that, his he own head, that. more money equals I'm worth more. And his core belief is I'm nothing. I'm worth nothing. Mm. Um, and so if you're empty inside and you're looking outside and money is your measure, he just lost 385, you know, you count it all in, right. it's a half a billion dollars if you include right. E. Jean Carroll. So his feeling is gotta be first and foremost today, humiliation, stupefaction, because I think he, he, he could not have believed that he was gonna, that the judgment would be this big against him and rage. Mm. Because uh, rage is his primary emotion. It, it is fascinating, though, for a guy who has been lying and telling stories so for so long. I mean, before politics, I mean, about, you know, his business acumen, all, all of that, to finally actually be in a court and have it called out and have a judge actually highlight, you know, you said this was 3,000 square feet, it was 1,000 square feet. I mean, to actually see it all in print is kind of, it's stunning. It's stunning to us. I mean, look, that's his playbook forever. Mm. I mean, he was he was telling lies. He's been telling lies all his life. He's been a fraud all his life. It just became absolutely official today mm. that he's a fraud. You know, Trump has two goals for his second term if he gets it. One is to end democracy. Not so much that he has a philosophical feeling about democracy, but he wants to be the autocrat. He wants to be in charge. Why? Well, partly for dominance, but mostly because the real number one desire he has is to be the richest man in the world. Because then maybe, maybe all that gnawing that's going on inside him might go away if he's number one truly. Mm. He wants to be richer than Putin. Putin's probably the richest person in the world now. Um, Putin's probably worth a trillion dollars. How do I know? There's good speculation that Putin has a lot. He would very much like to be richer than Putin. So he's gonna, he, that, that's gonna be the focus of his attention. And right now he's being asked, Anderson, he's being asked to pay an amount of money he does not have. The, the judge uh, wrote of the Trump Organization, their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological. That does not come as any surprise to you. Well, it's a silly thing to say. It doesn't border on pathological, it's sociopathic. Zero contrition for something you know you did that is wrong is the definition of sociopathy. Tony Schwartz, it's good to talk to you. Thank you, appreciate it. 
Coming up, the death of Russian dissident Alexei Navalny in a Siberian prison. Clarissa Ward, who once tracked down Russian assassins who tried to kill Navalny by poisoning him. And the director of the Oscar-winning documentary, Navalny, joined me to remember the man who paid the ultimate price standing up to Vladimir Putin. What you're seeing here is a skirmish between a protester and police in St. Petersburg, Russia. More than 100 people have been detained across Russia for attending vigils and rallies following the announcement that the most well-known dissident in Russia, Alexei Navalny, died in the Siberian prison where he'd been exiled. We don't know what happened to this protester, but an independent monitor says some of those detained have been released. The cause of Navalny's death remains unclear, but President Biden and world leaders today immediately pinned the blame on Russian President Vladimir Putin, quoting, from President Biden, he said, what has happened to Navalny is yet more proof of Putin's brutality. Clarissa Ward has more on the man who stood up to Putin. For three years, Alexei Navalny had been languishing in Russian penal colonies. Sentenced on charges of extremism, his real crime, taking on Russian President Vladimir Putin and exposing the rampant corruption of Russia's political elites. Navalny's lawyers warned that the brutal conditions and solitary confinement were taking a toll on him. Still, he managed to communicate to his followers and loved ones through social media. On Valentine's Day this year, as he had done every year, he posted a message to his wife, Yulia. Baby, everything is like in a song with you. Between us, there are cities, the takeoff lights of airfields, blue snowstorms, and thousands of kilometers. But I feel that you are near every second, and I love you more and more. <laughs> Hours after the shocking news broke, Yulia Navalnaya addressed world leaders at the Munich Security Conference. I would like Putin and all his staff, everybody around him, his government, his friends, I want them to know that they will be punished for what they have done with our country, with my family and with my husband. They will be brought to justice and this day will come soon. Defiant and determined, just as her husband always was. A staunch critic of Putin for more than a decade, Alexei Navalny had dodged death before. Collapsing on a plane from Siberia in August 2020 after being poisoned with the deadly nerve agent Novichok. The flight was diverted. Two days later, a comatose Navalny was flown to Berlin and saved by a team of German doctors. The CNN investigation with Bellingcat found that a team of FSB operatives had been following Navalny on trips across the country for years before poisoning him. We located one of the men accused of the poisoning and tracked him down to his apartment in Moscow. My name is Clarissa Ward. I work for CNN. My name is Clarissa Ward. I work for CNN. Can I ask you a couple of questions? Can I ask you a couple of questions? At the Russia commander at Ravila Navalny, was it your team that poisoned Navalny, please? Do you have any comment? He doesn't seem to want to talk to us. Despite the attempt on his life, Navalny vowed to continue his work and return home. So you've said that you want to go back to Russia. And I will do. You're aware of the risks of going back. Yes, but I'm a Russian politician, and uh, even when I was not just in hospital, I was in intense therapy. And I said publicly, I will go back, and I will go back, because I'm a Russian politician, I belong to this country, and, and definitely, which I, I, especially now, 
when this actually crime is cracked open, revealed, I, I understand the whole operation. I would never give Putin such a gift. Before boarding the plane to Moscow, Navalny posted an expose on YouTube about the $1.3 billion Black Sea villa he claimed belonged to Vladimir Putin. It was viewed more than 100 million times. The moment he landed back in Moscow, he was taken into custody. Yet even in prison, Navalny never stopped criticizing Putin, never lost the extraordinary charisma and courage that made him popular. Russia's opposition has now been crushed, but in prescient words from the Oscar-winning documentary Navalny, he had a clear message for the Russian people. You are not allowed to give up, he says. If they kill me, it means we are incredibly strong. And I'm joined now by our chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward. I mean, we've seen some of the skirmishes of people arrested. What more kind of reactions have you seen across Russia? More than 100, uh, according to a Russian monitoring group, have been arrested or detained uh, on the streets of various cities across Russia. We've also seen some silent vigils, people lining up tearfully, just placing uh, flowers out in memory of Alexei Navalny. But definitely, it has been a very muted response inside Russia, where the risks are so high. Across the world, though, we have seen Russians coming out outside embassies in many different capitals openly grieving uh, this tremendous loss for anybody who believed in a better, freer future for Russia, Anderson. Clarissa, stay with us. I want to bring in the director of the Academy Award-winning documentary film, Navalny, a clip of which we just saw in Clarissa's piece. Uh, Daniel Rohr joins us now. Daniel, I know you spent obviously a great deal of time working with Alexei Navalny. I'm so sorry for the, the pain you uh, must be feeling and all those who worked on the film with you. Can you just talk a little bit about what he was actually like in, in person? Because, I mean, just from a distance, the extraordinary courage and strength he must have had to knowingly go back to Russia, knowing what awaited him, knowing the likelihood of, of what could, how his life could end. Well, Anderson, first and foremost, thank you for having me on the program this evening. Uh, I'm sad to be here, but I'm happy that I get to talk a little bit about Alexei. Here was a man who was charismatic. He was funny. He was a terrific father. Uh, he loved to debate. He loved to talk about politics. He and I became fast friends. And although we didn't have the, the same mother language, I think our common language was, was through humor. He, he was very quick to make fun of me, and I'd give it right back to him. And I think that that jovial relationship really comes through in the movie. And, and that's the man who I'm thinking about and mourning today. Well, I mean, Clarissa, I mean, you, you interviewed him as well. And I mean, talking about the, the humor, we, we saw that in his last court appearance, which was just yesterday, uh, remotely from, uh, from the penal colony where he was. He was joking with the judge that he was talking to. He was. And if you actually stay on the shot, Anderson, you see the camera pan over to the prison guard and the prison guard is laughing along because even those who were part of the system that was working against Navalny found it very difficult when confronted with him in person not to be disarmed. He was self-deprecating. He was funny. He was humorous. He was determined. He was defiant and, and, and very difficult not to admire that in some way, shape or form, Anderson. Daniel, for people who watch your film now, what do you hope that they take away from it about what he represented? 
you know, Anderson, I think that the legacy of the film is different now. Um, I used to tell people that this movie is, believe it or not, a comedy. He's such a funny, charismatic guy. It's not funny anymore. Um, you know, I think now when people watch this film, they need to be reminded of the fragility of democracy. Um, of course, Navalny's great mission was to bring democracy to Russia, but all over the world there are contexts where the rise of authoritarianism um, is, is sweeping through all kinds of countries. Um, and I think we have to realize that democracy is fragile, and certainly here in, in this country where there are political factions who seem to embrace authoritarianism. Um, we need to participate and be active citizens and heed the call that Navalny delivers at the end of the movie. Don't be inactive. Clarissa, this may sound like an odd question to some people, but, but do we know what will happen to his body? Will his family get his body back? And I ask this not just for, for, I'm, for their peace of mind, but also for evidence of actually what was done to him or what happened to him. I don't think anyone is holding out hope, Anderson, that there is going to be a proper, thorough and transparent autopsy. And unlike the investigation, which Daniel documented, which we were privileged to be a part of, along with Bellingcat, led by Christo Grozev, I think it's very unlikely that we will have that kind of a thorough and clear reckoning as to how exactly Alexei Navalny was killed. But the bottom line, ultimately, whether it's from his friends, his followers, uh, world leaders, across the globe is that Russia is responsible. No matter how exactly he may have died today, the reality is he was being held in the custody of the Russian state. And you heard President Biden himself say it. Vladimir Putin is the man responsible for well, his Well, also death. being tortured, I mean, at the very least psychologically, but, you know, having somebody put in his cell who never bathed and who, you know, had some severe uh, uh, mental or emotional issues... Uh, I mean, you know, the full extent of the stresses and horrors that he had to face on a daily basis, it, it, it's untold. Um, Daniel, I just want to play a bit more from the film, from your film, where he speaks to his supporters. We need to utilize this power to not give up and to remember we are a huge power that is being oppressed by these bad dudes. We don't realize how strong we actually are. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. So don't be inactive. I mean, Daniel, do you think others will, will take his place? I mean, that others will stand up where, where he no longer can? I think that that's the most important thing that I'm thinking about today, Anderson. Navalny was one man, but he set up his organization quite intentionally so that in the case of his death, there would be a continuity. This is the, the beginning of a new dawn for, for the Russian opposition. Um, and, you know, the night is darkest just before the dawn. So it is my hope that the supporters and the staff who have been helping him um, will rise to the occasion. I don't yet know who the next Navalny will be or the next iteration of the Russian opposition, what that will look like. But I take solace in knowing that Navalny is gone, but his mission lives on. Clarissa Ward, thank you. Daniel Rohr, thank you so much. And, and I'm glad that, that the film Navalny uh, will be seen again tomorrow night, 9 Eastern time, right here on CNN. Just ahead, Georgia DA Fannie Willis testified yesterday. Today was her father's turn. What he said and whether it will help his daughter stay on the case against Trump.
The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. The hearing to determine whether Georgia D.A. Fonnie Willis will be disqualified from her election interference case against the former president and others has concluded. Willis's dad took the stand today, as did the divorce attorney and former law partner for Nathan Wade, whose relationship with Willis is at the heart of the hearing. Nick Valencia has details. Can you tell us why you were late today? Terrence Bradley was supposed to be a star witness for defense attorneys trying to disqualify Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis from the Donald Trump election interference case. But on Friday, Wade's former law partner and divorce attorney couldn't provide details to show Willis and Nathan Wade were lying about the extent of the romantic relationship. I have no personal knowledge of when it actually happened. Um, I was not there. I do not have any personal knowledge. Attorney-client privilege, a major hurdle for the defense, especially after Judge Scott McAfee ruled Bradley could not be asked about what privileged conversations he had with Wade about his relationship. If we're going to talk about the privilege, I'm happy to ask him the substance of the question. Yet one defense attorney managed to introduce a text exchange with Bradley in 2023 about the Wade-Willis romance. So what I have is a text message from you saying, oh my God, Nathan took funny on a trip to Napa and paid for it with his firm. Okay, continue reading. And you said, is he that dumb? Also testifying Friday, Fonnie Willis's father, backing up her heated testimony from Thursday when she said she always keeps cash on hand. I've always kept cash, uh, you know, and I've told my daughter, you keep six months worth of cash, always. On both days, money was center stage because defense attorneys are trying to prove that Willis somehow benefited financially from a relationship with Wade through gifts and vacations that Wade paid for with money he earned on the case. We went out multiple times. That probably went to the level of more than $100. But if, if we're doing tit for tat like that, I probably paid for as many meals as he paid for. And so I did not receive any gifts from him. And Willis and Wade both maintain the relationship began only after Wade took the job of special prosecutor. Willis's father testified he didn't know about the relationship until the rest of the world found out and only met him recently. I did not meet Nathan Wade until 2023. In a surprise turn, Willis did not take the stand again on Friday, her team believing they had enough to beat back efforts to disqualify her. The state um, has no further questions for Ms. Willis. Nick Valencia, CNN, Atlanta. I'm joined now by Michael Moore, former U.S. attorney in Georgia, plus uh, criminal defense attorney and former Manhattan chief assistant DA Karen Friedman Agnifilo. Karen, I mean, did the defense here move the needle at all? I mean, because it, it seems like on every front, they've pretty much come up with nothing. Well, in two areas, I think they did not succeed. Number one, they really haven't established a conflict of interest, a financial conflict of interest, as much as they kept trying, there just was nothing there that would show that there was any sort of financial relationship or financial incentive. That Fonnie Willis was benefiting Correct. from the salary that, that Wade was getting. Correct. And second, they tried to discredit 
Fonnie Willis and Nathan Wade, who both testified that the relationship started after he was hired, and they failed at that as well, despite trying. In fact, a former governor uh, of, of uh, Georgia testified today, and it was all about the fact that uh, Ms. Willis, D.A. Willis, tried to get him to take the job because she testified that he was Nathan Wade wasn't even her first choice. So she tried to get the former governor, who's now a lawyer, to take the job, but that he didn't want to do it because of all the threats and, and financial reasons. And the date was prior to when Nathan Wade was hired. So to you, let, let's play, we have the sound of Roy Barnes uh, on the stand. Let, let's play that. She asked me if I'd be interested in being special prosecutor, to which I replied that I had mouths to feed at a law office and uh, that I could not, I would not do that. He, he went on to say he didn't want to live with bodyguards for, for the, the rest of his life because of threats he was already receiving for, for, for other stuff. The significance of that to you is that Wade was not her first choice. And if the, if the allegation is they were in a prior relationship and she picked Wade because they were dating— this would indicate that she actually tried to pick this guy first. Exactly. And so there really was no financial conflict of interest that would impact whether or not she could uh, be still the prosecutor on this case. And there was just really nothing to dis prove what they were saying and to move the ball forward on the financial aspect either. Michael, do you think the judge is going to take Fonny Willis off this? I don't know. I don't know if they... Bad judgment about having a relationship yeah. aside, just on what the, did think, the defense did their job? I, I, I think that it's a 50-50 chance right now that she comes off. I think the easiest thing would have been if she just pulled Wade off of the case early on and maybe we wouldn't be in all of this uh, circus that we've been watching here. Um, but what may happen is this issue of the attorney-client privilege. And so there's a lawyer, Mr. Bradley, we've heard from, and he's now being interviewed in camera, which just means privately by the judge. And so the judge is going to inquire whether or not he, uh, what he knew, when he knew it, those things that that the judge protected from the courtroom and from the public, uh, things that could have been attorney-client privilege. And uh, we'll see if so, he finds so, 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 the, so the, that attorney can talk to the judge, frankly, even stuff that's attorney-client privilege. Well, the judge will do it carefully to make sure there's no incrimination and that kind of thing. But he, he'll ask him about things like these text messages that we've seen and these this question of whether or not uh, Mr. Uh, Bradley approved of the contents of the motion. That seems to be out there. There's an email and a text, apparently, where he approves the, the allegations set forth in the motion. If that happens, then I think that's a different ball game when you've got a possibility of a prosecutor and maybe a special prosecutor uh, not being candid with the court. And so we've got one witness, we know, the first witness, who said, no, this happened earlier. We've got Mr. Wade and Ms. Willis saying they visited with each other in 2021 privately at, at her home. Right. And uh, now we have this issue of the, apparently, the divorce lawyer having some inf information uh, that seems to indicate that maybe there, that was maybe there was a relationship, and we don't know it yet. So while the fight, while the money's not there yet, that could be the, it's all like just like a lot of times the cover up could be worse. Karen, do you agree with that? Because that first witness who said, "Oh, she thought the relationship came earlier." I mean, they impugned her potential motives that she was basically forced out of the DA's office, uh, to, you know, given the chance of either resigning or, or, or being fired. 
Look, I think there was... And she didn't have any specifics. Exactly. I think there was a lot more that the defense could have done but didn't do here. For example, define what you mean by relationship. Were there feelings between them before? Is it just sexual? The sex, that's when a relationship begins? Exactly. Or did they have a crush on each other? Did they... Were they close friends? I mean... They didn't pursue that at all. Nobody... Why? I, I, I was baffled by this because they really didn't, pers- they, they were not precise. And if they were precise, I think, and, and asked more questions that went more to, to the heart of the, the issue and the problem, they should have also asked Fannie Willis about how did, how did you hire people and what vetting process did they go to and did they submit invoices and, and how did you determine the $250 an hour versus somebody else? None who, of that was asked. None of that was asked. And had they developed that record, I think that they could could have established potentially a conflict of interest that if there is something to discredit them, I think could potentially make them come off the case. But the lawyers instead, I think, focused on the salacious part of it rather than the facts that could help their case. Karen Freeman, Nifilo, Michael Moore, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, More breaking news, new exclusive reporting on the Russian, uh, the nuclear space weapon that U.S. officials say Russia is developing and the threat they say it could pose. That's next. More breaking news tonight. Exclusive new reporting about that nuclear space weapon that U.S. officials say Russia is working on. CNN's Orrin Lieberman joins us now from the Pentagon. What more have you learned about it? Anderson, according to three sources familiar with the intelligence, Russia is trying to develop a nuclear space weapon that would use one of the byproducts of a nuclear weapon uh, to try to, or a nuclear explosion, I should say, to try to render satellites ineffective or effectively useless and destroy those satellites. Now, President Joe Biden said earlier today in discussing this that there was no nuclear threat to the U.S., and the administration has already said this is something that's under development, not something that's operational. Still, it's clear the administration views use this as a threat. And it's not just because of the risk to U.S. satellites, which are used for things like nuclear command and control, early warning satellites, and more. It's also the threat to commercial satellites that are used for communications, internet, and so much more. This is what's put at risk if the Russians were to make such a nuclear space weapon operational. And how does an EMP, uh, uh, electromagnetic pulse weapon work? So that's what's the heart of this, that byproduct of a nuclear explosion. Normally, when we think of a nuke, we think of the the explosion itself, the heat from it causing that destruction. In this case, one of the byproducts of a nuclear explosion is an electromagnetic pulse, which is a very powerful energy wave, effectively, that fries the circuitry and the electronics within a satellite. It doesn't have to destroy it physically, but it renders it ineffective. It makes it useless so that the satellite itself can't work. That's how this weapon could work. And it wouldn't just affect U.S. satellites. Effectively, anything near it would be affected by an electromagnetic pulse if it's powerful enough. And that's part of the risk here. It's not specifically targeted. It could wipe out a whole bunch of satellites that are used not only by the U.S. military and others, but also by commercial companies and, and for so many more purposes. Now, U.S. satellites, especially the military ones, are supposed to be have systems that defend against uh, uh, EW weapons, electromagnetic weapons. But it would still take out a tremendous number of commercial satellites, U.S., Russian, and so much more. And that in and of itself would have a dramatic effect on global communications and so much more here. So it could also take out Russian satellites. And is it known what Russia's timeline is for the technology? As of right now, this is still in development, so it's not yet operational, but clearly the administration views this as a risk. There is no set timeline here, but yes, absolutely, this would affect Russian satellites that were on an orbit that were near 
where this exploded, where that electromagnetic pulse was set off. And from that perspective, officials say it's, it would only really likely be used as a last-ditch weapon, essentially to try to blind adversaries and enemies by taking out communications, taking out early warning satellites, and, and almost in a way try to set the playing field back to zero if something like this were to be used. Yeah. Orrin Lieberman, thanks so much. We'll be right back. There have been all kinds of political scandals over the years, but I don't think you've seen them covered like you will this weekend. Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, join Jake Tapper for the premiere of his new CNN original series, United States of Scandal, with back-to-back -back episodes. Jake talks with the still-defiant former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich, who served eight years in prison on federal corruption charges. Jake also looks at the extramarital affair confession from former South Carolina Governor Mark Sanford after his office claims he was hiking the Appalachian Trail. Again, United States of Scandal starts at 9 p.m. Sunday night here on CNN. The news continues. The Source with Caitlin Collins starts now. Have a good weekend. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.